Welcome to Philosophers on Medicine. Side effects include having your mind blown. I'm Jonathan Fuller. Evidence-based medicine, narrative medicine, precision medicine. Are these the names of new schools of medicine or of new models for medical research or practice? Or are they simply a clever, and in some cases lucrative, rebranding of older ideas? What do they have to offer medicine? What's all the fuss about? In part, these recent and influential movements in medicine concern medical knowledge and medical evidence. So what might philosophers studying medical knowledge and evidence have to say about these three quote-unquote medicines? Today's consultation is with philosopher Miriam Solomon, professor of philosophy at Temple University. Miriam Solomon, thanks for joining us. Hi, Jonathan. So we're going to be talking about evidence-based medicine, narrative medicine, and precision medicine. Okay. So we have a lot of ground to cover. Why don't we start with the first? What is evidence-based medicine? Evidence-based medicine is the use of high-quality clinical trials to assess the effectiveness of medical interventions. That's my statement. There are many other statements of what evidence-based medicine is, but that's a start. You argue that evidence-based medicine can be seen as a kind of empiric medicine. What do you what do you mean by that? The word empiric comes from the ancients. And the idea of empiric medicine is that it's medicine that you know from experience works, but you don't necessarily understand why it works. So we've had knowledge for millennia that chewing on a particular kind of bark will relieve pain. And we now know it contains a similar chemical to aspirin, but it wasn't known then why, and it was just general practical knowledge. And it's a bit of a careful statement of words, but I distinguish empiric from empirical medicine. So all medicine's empirical. We use data and evidence and so on to establish and develop medications. But empiric medicine is sort of just the results. It doesn't require understanding of the mechanisms. Uh, it just requires that there's a robust result there, that when people uh, use that intervention, then they do better. So, you know, a lot of people also think, what is evidence-based medicine? Isn't all medicine evidence-based? And I think that's a fair question. And really, evidence-based medicine should have been called something else. It should have been called either empiric medicine, or it should have been called epidemiological medicine, because it's a specific kind of evidence. It's not all possible evidence. And it's only the evidence of effectiveness and not the evidence for, for example, our models of why something might work. So it's practical knowledge, not theoretical knowledge. If empiric medicine or empiric schools of medicine are a tradition that goes back quite a long way, uh, what's original about evidence-based medicine, this movement that began 25 years ago or so? What's original is a sophisticated use of the mathematics of clinical trials. Now, ironically, you don't need that kind of sophisticated mathematics if you have 
a truly successful intervention. You know, when insulin was used in the early years to treat diabetes, they didn't need to do randomized controlled trials. The effect of using it was so consistent and the result of not using it was so consistent that randomized controlled trials weren't needed. Where you need randomized controlled trials is where the effects are variable, where it might help on average, but not everybody does better with a medication. Or when there's um, only a small gain that if you weren't measuring very carefully, you wouldn't pick up. That's the kind of thing that evidence-based medicine is structured to detect. And many of our medical gains are small. They're not big dramatic ones. And uh, in particular, for treatment of cancer. We have built small gains on small gains to the point that we have aggregated a good deal of effectiveness, but each is built on a trial that was only very slightly different from the one before and had only very slightly different results. And the final thing is it's sometimes difficult to measure outcomes, um, especially if outcomes are to some degree subjective. So measuring pain, for example, or mood can be heavily affected by the expectations of the researcher or by the expectations of the patient. And there, there's a necessity for masking the intervention so that the researcher doesn't know whether the patient has received it and the patient doesn't know whether the patient has received it. So that reports of subjective states like, like pain and, and mood are not affected by by expectations. And so rigorous trial methodology has been designed to get around that kind of problem. Despite the advances that evidence-based medicine has brought to medicine, you argue that evidence-based medicine is an incomplete epistemology of medicine. What right. do you mean by that? I guess what I mean is that evidence-based medicine isn't all of medical knowledge. And the skills you need to do evidence-based medicine are not all the skills you need to do medical science. The skills you need to do laboratory work are quite different from those that you need to run clinical trials. You know, I see the renewed focus on things like translational medicine as an acknowledgement that clinical trials aren't the whole of research, that in order to run a clinical trial, you've done an enormous amount of lab work, you've come up with hypotheses and you've tested them, in kind of good old fashioned empirical method and uh, in the lab. And then, you know, there may be animal trials. There's some creativity involved in thinking about how, whether an intervention might or might not work. You don't go straight into stage three clinical trials. So you also have the stage one and the stage two, and you try to figure out whether the drug is having an effect and whether it's toxic in the first and the second. So yeah, I, ju I just think it's a mistake to put all the, give all the praise to stage three clinical trials and to think that that's the core of the science because we couldn't do them if we didn't also know how to do other things such as develop hypotheses and test them. I want to move on to the second of our three medicines, narrative medicine. What is narrative medicine? I don't think there's an official definition of narrative medicine, but I think of it as the use of literary skills in the practice of medicine. 
So it's supposed to be a set of skills that the clinician uses and makes them a better clinician. It makes them a better clinician in a variety of ways. It makes the relationship between the patient and the physician a better relationship. But it also improves diagnosis and helps guide treatment. So it's not just about the warm and fuzzy side of the doctor-patient encounter. It's also about if you do narrative medicine, you will make better diagnoses and you will come up with better plans for treatment and there will be better compliance from the patient and so on and so forth. So some of it's about the doctor-patient relationship and improving and strengthening that. Some of it is about detective skills and using literary skills in the clinic as detective skills. It's about paying full attention to what the patient is doing and not just to the words, but to the form, the tone, the body language, and so on. The, the term was popularized in this country by Rita Sharon, who is famous for saying that good readers make good doctors. But it's also very popular in the United Kingdom, and uh, it's a little less theorized there, and there's more tendency to you know, just tell a lot of stories and not write so much about literary theory. But certainly these approaches cohere. And I think of it as the latest trend in humanistic medicine. And, you know, when people talk about the art and science of medicine, this is the latest trend in the art of medicine. And many people who practice narrative medicine say things like, this makes the patient encounter more human, less cold, more particularized, less general, and so on. So they see it as a counter to what their understanding is of the science of medicine. They see the science of medicine as about generalities and about objectifying the patient and so on and so forth. I don't actually see the science that way, so I wouldn't put it that way, but it's a common enough view that doctors are scientists and lack humanity. That seems like a lot of great virtues being claimed for narrative medicine, a lot of great potential outcomes being hoped for. How is narrative medicine supposed to accomplish these? So in other words, how is it thought that literary theory might help us to be better diagnosticians? Well, people like Rita Sharon give examples. And they give examples in which they analyze patient narratives. So one example, Rita Sharon has a patient who complains of abdominal pain and uh, seems convinced that he has pancreatic cancer, which his father died of. And what Rita Sharon notices is that the patient says this without any great distress. And it's quite common for people to think they had what their parents had and, you know, will die at the same age and so on and so forth. That's quite common, but usually it's accompanied by distress. And she uh, interrogated that and discovered that he was actually suicidal and quite glad that he had what he thought was pancreatic cancer. So the paying attention to the way in which the story was told made her go beyond the words that were said. There are other cases that she 
discusses where it's not about the narrative the patient gives, but it's about the narrative the doctor themselves tells about an experience they had in medicine. She has medical students write what she calls parallel charts, in which they write the thoughts about patients that don't go in the main chart. Their thoughts about this patient reminds me of another patient, or this patient is upsetting to me for the following reason. And then they reflect on the parallel chart and share it with others. And often a good deal of interest comes up out of analyzing how people write and what they're saying about the medical work they do and their feeling about what they do. So it's a good source of reflective practice, I think. Maybe that would be a way of describing it. It feeds into reflective practice. Um, the word narrative is used really broadly. You know, you can be telling a narrative without even t using words. So um, although literary theory plays some role with some of it, uh, gestures and so on are all part of narrative medicine. And the idea is that you, as a physician, pay attention to more than the official signs and symptoms. All right. So on to the last we have also precision medicine and personalized medicine. I guess to start, are these two different movements or ideas? Well, I've wondered about that for a while, and I'm not 100% sure. But I think that, well, I know personalized medicine came first, and precision medicine came later. But they seem to be about pretty much the same things, which is developing technologies that treat subgroups of patients who look like they have the same disease, but are actually biochemically slightly different from one another. So one example is in cystic fibrosis. There are many different kinds of mutation that lead all of the same gene, but many different kinds of mutation that lead to the symptoms of cystic fibrosis. And in order to correct what that gene does, you can give a drug for one typical error, and that will treat maybe 10% of patients with cystic fibrosis. But then you need to develop another intervention for those with a slightly different mutation. Maybe that will cover 3%. And it's called personalized it makes it sound like it's made for you as a person, and that's not really true. It's made for the group of people with that mutation. The same idea is used for cancers when they tissue type the cancer, and there it is not personalized for you. It is tailored to your particular cancer mutation, which you may even view as your enemy. So to call it personalized is a little strange. But the language of personalized seemed to convey caring for people as individuals, even though the science was nothing to do with caring for them as individuals. It was just about their, their sub-mutation. So I think after a while, that language jarred. And precision medicine is a more precise term. It does lose the hint of being personalized, but that was not ever there anyway. Um, so it's a, it's a more honest claim for the same kind of uh, intervention. I think precision medicine is a much better term, and I think that we're moving to use that. 
some of the ideas you were mentioning, like the idea of understanding a unique cancer's genotype and tailoring treatments to that understanding could be described as rational drug design, which is an older idea. Oh. And then this idea also of um, studying more select groups of patients and coming up with treatments or at least better estimates of the effectiveness of treatments for those smaller groups of patients. That's an idea that sounds very much like subgroup analysis in evidence-based medicine. So there's mm -hmm. some other ideas that seem to at least be borrowed from older uh, movements. Is there anything new about precision medicine? Hmm. I think in an age of evidence-based medicine, when the emphasis was on really large trials, the need was for a drug that could be used in large populations and not subpopulations. And when the goal is to only get something that works in a subpopulation, then already you don't have those huge numbers of individuals to work with. And it could even be that you have fewer than you would need to run a randomized controlled trial. So the randomized controlled trial approach and the personalized medicine or precision medicine approach in some ways move us in different directions. Randomized controlled trials wants maximum generality, whereas precision medicine wants subgroups that can be very small. So it, it can be too small to run run a randomized controlled trial is with significance. What they're hoping is that the trade-off in numbers is compensated for by the greater benefit. If you've got a really precise tool, then maybe the interventions will be miraculously wonderful and we won't need a very sophisticated trial methodology to see that. So. We have seen some of this in some of the new drugs that are developed for certain cancers. We don't fully understand why they work in some subgroups and not in others. But we've certainly seen some dramatic effects. So we've talked about evidence-based medicine, narrative medicine, precision medicine. They all share this common feature that they have the word medicine in their name. But it's not like they're separate professions that someone would go to school for and come out as an evidence-based medicine doctor versus a precision med medicine doctor. So what are these three different things? How can we best understand what they are? Well, you know, as I think about these things, I try to ask, you know, how much, how much of naming things is a way of attracting attention and being the newest this or the newest that? And I think there's certainly an aspect of that. But I don't think it's just like fashion. I think there's more going on than that. And there were new tools that went into um, creating evidence-based medicine. And they were powerful tools. And people had to work out what it was good for and what it was not good for. And in the process of doing it, kind of laid the ground for saying, well, it wasn't good for these things. So maybe we need to create something to fill the gap. And that would have been translational medicine or precision medicine. I also don't think that we just go from one to the other. 
I think we still have evidence-based medicine in an age of precision medicine, and we still have consensus conferences now. I tend to think of them as coming more into focus and then going into the background, but all continuing to play a role. And we improve our methods, and sometimes we add things to them, but we very rarely throw things away. You argue for an untidy methodological pluralism to describe mm -hmm. the relationships among these various quote-unquote medicines or movements. Um, why do you say that? Why do you think it's the best account? Well, you know, some people would say, yes, we've got all these different methods in medicine, but they all are in different areas of medicine and they're good at what they do. And so it's tidy pluralism. You know, we have certain methods for discovery and then we have certain methods for uh, testing and, and so on and so forth. I think there's some truth to that. That is, evidence-based medicine is important in a particular stage of testing. But I also think that these methods come into conflict in areas where they actually both have something to say. So they don't all have their own tidy areas. And, you know, clinical judgment, which is another method, not one that I discuss much, can easily come into conflict with, for example, evidence-based medicine. And what to do in those cases is not clear. Um, and I don't think that any one of the methods should be hegemonic. We shouldn't say, let's always defer to evidence-based medicine. All the methods are fallible. So we don't know which methods will be best for dealing with any particular question. Well, even though we've been discussing an untidy methodological pluralism, you've certainly helped to tidy up my understanding of the situation. So thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. To hear more Philosophers on Medicine, visit www.philosophersonmedicine.com or find us on iTunes or Google Play.